Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast where we explore the ghosts of Sydney past. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And last fortnight, Alistair, I told you what I consider to be an excellent series of vignettes about department stores in Sydney. Uh, I selected five of the finest, and thankfully they overlapped perfectly with the ones you already knew about. Yeah, well, that I knew a little bit about some of them. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I later found out that there were many more at a wedding that we were at recently where Michael Locke, one of our keenest listeners, uh, told me all about another department store that I had never heard of the, whose building was used by TAFE for many years. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot, of, a lot of department stores in Sydney at one point. There were. There were. I could only, I could only touch on a couple for brevity's sake. And I also, for brevity's sake, no, just a mistake, forgot to thank Andrew, one of our listeners, for suggesting a last fortnight's topic and for drawing my attention to the most excellent tale of the Horden family tree, the literal tree. <laughs> that was a really good tale. I really enjoyed the picture you put on social media. It's, it's a beautiful tree and very, very strong similarity between it and the coat of arms. Despite being from opposite corners of the world. Fascinating stuff. But that's enough of that. I believe last fortnight, Alistair, you dropped us a few hints for what this episode would be about. And I've been enthusiastically repeating parts of it to whoever will listen, mainly about this fascinating amphitheatre at Balmoral and the people who built it, hoping that Jesus was going to come down from heaven and walk through the Sydney heads directly towards them like some sort of rising sun. It's a wonderful image, isn't it? It is, and I can't wait to find out what on earth it's all about. Well, before we get into the tale, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I'm recording right now, which is the Bidjigal people, and the traditional custodians of that lovely piece of the North Shore where this amphitheater was and where much of the activities of the group we're going to be discussing took place, uh, which is the Camaragal people. And also the traditional custodians of the land upon which I record my podcast, which is the Darawal people. Yeah. So before we discuss this amphitheater built in the 1920s amidst great excitement about the coming of a new messiah, I thought we could kind of rewind and start at the start by actually revisiting an episode that you brought to our attention uh, in our last season, Jed, in your episode about the Maclays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be precise, I thought we could revisit the man who consigned Sydney's very own William Maclay and his Quinarian theory of zoological classification to the dustbin of history. None other than Sir Charles Darwin. That's the man. So, yes, Charles Darwin. Mm -hmm. He's published uh, On the Origin of Species. Mm -hmm. It's not only disrupted our dear Maclay's intellectual legacy but it's also disrupted the confidence of some people in the book of Genesis and the Judeo-Christian religious tradition. Mm -hmm. However, at the time, this is a relatively small group of people who are pushed to radically reimagine what spiritual and moral teachings take the place that the Christian faith previously had in the British Empire broadly. So we've got some, some sort of standard thinker types, not preoccupied with the laboring of the working class who are instead dedicating themselves to postulating about uh, how on earth they're going to reorganize our society after this disruption. Yeah. Yeah. So these kind of people are worried about things like how people can live meaningful and moral lives if this 
previous spiritual underpinning of society is going to fade away in the wake of Darwin. Meanwhile, more practical men are worrying about where on earth we're going to dispose of human excrement. <laughs> Indeed, there were many issues on the table at the time, and some people chose this one. And the people who did choose this one uh, like to congregate in a societies known as free thought societies. Sydney was no exception to this trend, and in 1890, the ambitious and apparently very well-funded Sydney Free Thought Society laid the foundation stone for a brand new purpose-built Sydney Free Thought Hall, and that building still stands today at 69 Campbell Street, Surrey Hills. Hmm. One for the building hunters, if we didn't give them enough fodder last fortnight. Yeah, there's a few for the building hunters in this episode. And so this first one, I try to describe things not just by the address, but so that people like me who have no idea about the names of streets can also imagine where it is. We're thinking Central Station, and then there's that big uh, bridge for the trains to go over. The sandstone viaduct that runs across Belmore Park, I believe you're referring to. The very one. So th it has these beautiful arching tunnels where the roads go underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one is Eddie Avenue. Mm -hmm. Then there's that park, mm -hmm. which you, was Belmore Park, is that its name? Mm -hmm. Then there's another street, which I can't re remember the name of. Hay Street. Okay, Hay Street. That would make sense, going towards Haymarket. And then very soon after that, it's a very small block. There's another one running parallel, and that is Campbell Street. Mm -hmm. If you follow that street up the hill into Surrey Hills, kind of to the east, pretty soon on your right, uh, is 69 Campbell Street, which is this building. Very good. Next to a bus stop. Home to the Free Thought Society. Well, Jed, not anymore. The uh, Free Thought Society. <laughs> free ambitious. Thought is dead. <laughs> There's no more free thinking anymore. Well, yeah, they, they built this building, uh, but apparently things were a bit tough in the 1890s. There was a depression. They didn't do very well. And in 1895, only five years after this building was built, they uh, had to sell the building and to rub salt in the wound they had to sell it to none other than the Disciples of Christ Society. <laughs> yes, well, I can't imagine there were many other groups that had need for a large, ornate hall. No, indeed not. Uh, but it is a beautiful building, well worth a squiz if you're walking by. There's uh, absolutely no plaque or indication of its history as far as I can tell on it. You just have to take my word for it and do a bit of Googling. And its current tenant is a company called Velo, Who have sponsored this fortnight's podcast. They haven't, though if they're interested, they can get in touch. Uh, they make modern corporate headquarters and university buildings, things like that. You know when they update something and suddenly there's all this wacky modern furniture in curvy shapes <laughs> and strange colors? Yeah, the guys yes. behind that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so you can also check that out while you're... Um... Sound like free thinkers to me. <laughs> yeah, you know what? They probably are. Yeah, they, they've got a little um, a showroom mm -hmm. there in that building now. All right, so that's the first little bit of uh, Sydney history, a building to visit, but didn't last very long. And we are going to move from this free thought society to a more specific uh, spiritual group that were also knocking around at this time in the latter quarter of the 19th century. And that is the Theosophists. Mm -hmm. And they were the people who will be responsible for uh, this amphitheater and radio stations, all of those kind of things. They sound like they might be a little bit more interested in Jesus than the free thinkers. So they're definitely quite spiritual, but the Theosophy movement was founded by a woman called Madame Blavatsky in 1875 in New York. She was a Russian immigrant. She is 
I think to this day, a fairly famous occult theorist. I feel like I've heard of her. Yeah, you probably I can't contribute have. anything. But when you said the name, I was like, that is ringing a bell. Uh, yeah, so I also... I'm going to struggle to tell you much about what esoteric and mysterious belief systems actually are. That her works are still in circulation today. She's quite a famous figure. The theosophy movement, you were saying these people seem much more concerned with Jesus than the free thought people. Well, I'm just basing it off the first couple of letters in their name. <laughs> I could be entirely They've wrong. Got some theology stuff. Yeah. So the fascinating thing is they actually were very interested in Eastern religions. Uh-huh. So... Actually, let's just dive into a quote from Blavatsky. Who founded this mob. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. she claims that theosophy, and I quote, will burst asunder the iron fetters of creeds and dogmas, of social and caste prejudices. It will open the way to the practical realization of the brotherhood of all men. Through its teaching, the West will learn to understand and appreciate the East at its true value. Mm Mm-hmm. Ahead of her time. Yes. I mean, that's what's really interesting, I think, about this group, is it seems, I think, very relevant to now, this very intense movement at the turn of the century and into the 1920s. And people said the Beatles started the interest in India. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that part is, I think, really interesting. Yeah. The idea was that theosophy was going to unite common strands that all religions have and and bring this kind of spiritual cohesion to the to the world so that everyone sees that we, we've all got these same spiritual beliefs underpinning all of our religions. But the, the main insights that, that Madame Blavatsky claimed to have found were in the Eastern religions, which had a broader notion of spirituality and a less... Uh, prone to being disproved by a scientific discovery. Yes. And they, the notions of karma and of reincarnation were very popular as ways of thinking about spiritual development and evolution through lifetimes and through reincarnation. And that kind of fitted quite well with this Darwinian account of evolution in the natural world. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few ties between scientific theory over there and these kind of spiritual accounts. Specifically, I don't know if you've ever heard of the lost continent of Lemuria. I haven't, but it sounds amazing. Yeah, I thought you'd like the lost continent stuff. I love a lost continent. Where is it? It's uh, between Madagascar and India. Uh-huh. The Mauritius. <laughs> yeah, no, the whole thing was a massive continent is the idea that there was land there and then it sunk underneath the sea. And is there some sort of shelf to indicate that she was correct? Uh, No, but the interesting thing is that this isn't a theory that was kind of just this wacky out there idea that uh, where the heck did it come from? Because it actually started out as a genuine scientific hypothesis. Um, And the reason that it's called Lemuria is after lemurs, the, you know, the fuzzy animals Mm -hmm. that kind of climb around trees in Madagascar. Mm -hmm. And basically some biologists had noticed that there was a strong resemblance between these lemurs in uh, Madagascar and lemurs in the Indian subcontinent. Uh Uh-huh. Very little resemblance between the Madagascar fauna and the fauna of nearby Africa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you need a theory to explain why this is the case. It's a very puzzling fact. Lemuria. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a ridiculous <laughs> claim. Um, it's, it makes a bit of sense. There was some, uh, for, for a brief period, this was being thrown around as scientific hypotheses are. There were then kind of competing explanations. The idea that this, that co- the way that continents kind of... Truly was a golden age for scientific hypotheses. <laughs> yeah. And the way that continents kind of 
came and went, it, it became less and less plausible that this enor- that an enormous con- continent just emerged from the sea and then disappeared under the sea. But the idea of continental drift and the explanation of that phenomena doesn't come till a lot later. However, Lemuria was kind of out of favor, even by Blavatsky's time, but she grabbed onto it. It was a catchy sounding name and it became part of the theosophical account, though apparently a fringe part of the account that only the real hardliners were into, uh, because it was also suggested that the human race might have started on this Lemuria continent, which again, Mm. isn't so wild given theories about the, the origins of man in Africa. So we won't be able to continue with this podcast until you do tell me exactly why the lemur is found in both southern India and Madagascar, but nowhere else. Uh, so I believe that the idea is that Madagascar did split off from the Indian subcontinent and move across the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the account is more complicated and there are some creatures that managed to get across the water from Africa to Madagascar. I think that that's the general idea. I'll take that. Carry on. Um Anyway, yeah, so Lemuria uh, became kind of this the first age of man. There's an evolutionary account of all of the different uh, cycles of man. I think we're on to the sixth uh, cycle of humanity, and there's the sub-races and different races. There's a whole account using the terminology of, of evolution, but a very different kind of spiritual account of direction towards spiritual enlightenment. Uh, the Theosophy Society that Blavatsky founds has three general aims. The first is a universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. But presumably of gender, since it's specified as a brotherhood. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, because actually women play a very prominent part in the Theosophical Society. But I guess uh, language uh, was used in a different way back then, and people weren't questioning brotherhood. Yeah. Uh, Also, like, accounts of man in general. I think I even was using that terminology just Mm -hmm. a few seconds ago, uh, just everywhere in the account, even if they're written by very progressive women. Mm -hmm. The second uh, aim is to promote the study of Eastern religions, um, literatures, and philosophies. And then the third is to investigate the unexplored laws of nature and the psychic powers latent in man. <laughs> I do feel like in some way the uh, um, goal one and two are somewhat at odds with each other where the first goal states like an equality of idea and no distinction of race. And then the second one expressly indicates that certain ideas and races will be prioritized and focused upon. Yeah, I think that the idea is within Eastern religions, uh, particularly Buddhism and uh, Hinduism, that there are ideas about the meaning of life and the, the relation of humans to each other that have universal relevance that people in the West have not known about and need to be aware of. Yeah, she's obviously writing from a very specific perspective. Yes, and in fact, she is considered one of the very first Westerners to convert to Buddhism. <laughs> Once again, at odds with aim number one. Uh, yeah, but very, or, or at least to, to have, yeah, strong interest in Buddhism. It's a very interesting thing, I guess, now because we have yoga studios on like every street corner at this time. <laughs> I think that was a very, very foreign world for most white Westerners. Yeah. All right. So Blavatsky actually ends up moving to India along with a couple of her closest confidants in the theosophical movement, including a man called Colonel Alcott. 
Um, and Colonel Alcott is actually a very significant figure in Sri Lankan history. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played a major role in Sri Lankan national identity and also education systems. I think there's a lot of educational institutions in Sri Lanka named after him, and particularly in the education of women in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. But the Theosophists set up their headquarters in Madras, which is modern-day Chennai, Chennai, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. That name change was actually only quite recent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so they're in what was then Madras. So this Alcott was a British military officer? Or was he just a self-styled colonel, like Colonel Sanders or Colonel Mustard? Excellent question, Jed. He uh, actually was an American uh, military officer, but he's most well-known for his uh, conversion to Buddhism, his uh, work in interpreting Buddhism. Right, so he was there as a civilian, not on official military business. He is not there on American military business. In fact, I I guess once a colonel, always a colonel. Yeah, well, (laughs) your guess is as good as mine. I guess, like, American presidents, they're always Uh the president, even when they're no longer the president. Right. Well, I'll keep referring to him as that. Yeah. Okay. So theosophy in Australia starts out, this is in the very early years, it's just circulating journals and bookshops that have obscure literature and pamphlets, very small circulation. But Alfred Deakin in Melbourne, our, I believe, second prime minister in Australia, Mm -hmm. uh, was the founder and leader of a theosophist society in Melbourne. Right. And is this when he was prominent politician uh this would have been before that so i think this was in the 1880s 1870s 80s around that but his interest in theosophy continues up towards him being a prominent politician Mm -hmm. so there's quite a few significant australian figures who were at least very interested in theosophy and at this point there were small lecture groups and reading groups dotted around melbourne and sydney interested in this spiritual movement but it was it was a relatively small thing the first big boost though to theosophy in australia came in 1887 when a founding australian theosophist of one of these small groups called carl hartman died in brisbane and his family was shocked and appalled to discover that he had willed his entire estate worth five thousand pounds which is a lot of money in What's today's that in money. Today's money? <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd ask. I have a note. Lots of money. Lots <laughs> of lots, okay. He had large amounts of land and a flourishing nursery yep. near Toowoomba. Mm. The Garden City. Yeah. Yeah, well, he had a very fine garden and he willed it to the Theosophical Society over in uh, Madras. Oh, the family would have hated that. <laughs> they certainly did. And so... President Olcott, Colonel Olcott, the man himself, he heads over to Australia to deal with this rather delicate matter. Uh, he heads over in 1891. I guess it takes him a while to get things together. The rage is mounting over in uh, southern Queensland. And so he tours up through Melbourne and Sydney and finally wakes, makes his way up to Brisbane, uh, where he does a wonderful job improving the image of theosophy by offering to share the bequest with the aggrieved family. He reserves his own travel and legal costs, but he retains a thousand of these 5,000 pounds for the society. And as said, he was very amused, this is a quote, amused to see the instantaneous change in public opinion towards the society and myself. Mm. Well, yeah, what happened? What did the public think of them? Well, he stayed on and ended up lecturing in Toowoomba on theosophy and Buddhism, amongst other things. And the Hartman family ended up actually becoming members of the Theosophical Society after all. Okay. Wow. Well, I guess that's where all their money was. Yeah, so he must have been quite convincing. 
Yeah. Also, their their like lost relative was obviously very committed to it. So I, maybe they were open to the idea once they found out that not all of their inheritance had gone to the society. Mm-hmm. He was so successful in uh, Toowoomba that a hall was built, another hall, this one called Olcott Hall on Russell Street, mm-hmm. backed by a lane that is now known as Olcott Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the building, again, still stands for our listeners in Toowoomba. And I have to show you a picture of what it currently looks like, Jed, because it now seems to be occupied by a Christian center and it is absolutely plastered with Aussies for Jesus posters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that's somehow going to come around to bearing a relationship to the Sydney Heads people. What what do you mean? uh... They're Aussies for Jesus. They're actually not for Jesus. So maybe we could just jump to this now. It was very misleading what I was saying about the Messiah. Well, the Messiah could be could be a new Messiah. Ah, okay. It's not, it's not the historical Jesus Messiah. It's There, there have been many, many uh, spiritual leaders through history. Maybe Muhammad, it's my Jesus, assumptions. Buddha. This is the next one, Jed. 1920s. Okay. Jesus 2.0. I'll, we'll brand him or them. As the case may be. We'll find out soon. Sorry, I'm shackled by my Judeo-Christian upbringing. <laughs> That's all right. I'll forgive you this time. <laughs> Not a free thinker. Um, all right. Olcott's done a, a great job in Toowoomba. Returning to Sydney, he uh, delivers lectures which were introduced by Edmund Barton, mm. subsequently the first prime minister of Australia, meaning that theosophy has at least so far a direct relation to the first two prime ministers of Australia. And a man who will eventually die at the Hydro Majestic. Oh, there you go. Such connections. The Herald reports that Olcott excited considerable interest, lecturing on his opposition to materialism, his hopes to help uh, the suffering of humanity and the uh, liberty of thought necessary for people in Australia to access Eastern religion and philosophy. Mm -hmm. So in Melbourne, unsurprisingly, his second lecture on Buddhism is also chaired by uh, Alfred Deakin, who we know is a fan of the movement. Big names. Yeah. So speaking of big names, we have, with Olcott, established a far more substantial theosophical society in Sydney and in Australia more broadly. There's a series of uh, what are called lodges in the major cities that Olcott visited. And theosophy is looking pretty good. But the big name that really takes theosophy to the next level is a woman called Annie Besant who I imagine you might not have heard of. I have not. That's all right. I hadn't either. She is a fascinating woman, as many of these people are. She is known in different parts of the world for different things, but she started out as a London radical. She had basically abandoned an intensely evangelical middle-class upbringing and a marriage to a reverend in rural England to become first a leading free thought lecturer. Back to the free thought people. Mm -hmm. She was uh, particularly famous for her battle against censorship of birth control literature. And she also uh, had a fierce and public legal battle for custody of her daughter with this reverend uh, in the 1870s. Mm, Wow. Yeah. So this is kind of way ahead of its time with these kind of issues. Yeah. Uh, She then moved towards socialism in the 1880s. Uh, She's particularly famous for her involvement in the London Match Girls strike, which is a significant strike in English history that I also didn't know very much about. And also her involvement in the Bloody Sunday protests in London uh, against unemployment and coercion in Ireland. And she was also an advocate for Irish home rule. Mm -hmm. And then finally in the 1890s, so she's getting through a lot of issues here. She (laughs) meets Madame Blavatsky in London. 
Blavatsky's actually kind of been exiled in disgrace from India after some unfavorable accounts of her abilities to make things come out of drawers and spirits appear. Uh, She just couldn't help herself, could she? (laughs) Yeah, there's some scathing reviews about the mechanisms behind the drawers and things like that. So she kind of moves back to London and becomes a less prominent public figure. It all has to end up with snake oil and levitating yogis. (laughs) Yes, but she does do a very uh, significant thing for the the Theosophical Society in London, which is convince Annie Besant to become involved in theosophy. It reminds me, this is a total non sequitur, but it reminds me of um, when I was backpacking in India some years ago in Nin Rishikesh, which is a very much at the forefront of this sort of East meets West ideas about uh, religion and life, the universe and everything. Uh, and so you could just walk around the streets and hear people say all kinds of things. My favorite one ever was walking past a conversation and a man just said to his friend, you know, there are some places in India with so much energy you literally leap forward in time. <laughs> it's called time travel. And that was it. We didn't hear anything else. <laughs> so there's a long lineage to good. these uh, Madame Blavinsky types. Yeah, this kind of, these new age movements, there are forerunners to that in the 1870s is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But she couldn't help herself with funny little drawers that did tricks and all the rest of it. Yeah, so these kind of psychic powers are another part of theosophy that I think maybe people like me and you, Jed, seem like, oh, there's some very fascinating cultural movements in here. And then there's this weird stuff about, you know, apparitions. Uh, But it was all tied together in theosophical belief systems. And I think for a lot of people, there is some cohesive story to be told about all of these different elements of spirituality. Mm -hmm. So moving back to Annie Besant, who becomes the figurehead of the Theosophical Society, moves to Madras, to India, to the headquarters of uh, the Theosophical Movement. And there she is very significant in the Indian self-determination movement. Mm -hmm. So she is listed amongst the founders of one of the largest universities in India, which is the Banaras Hindu University. Mm -hmm. She was uh, one of the founders of the Indian Home Rule League during the First World War. And yeah, she's a significant figure in Indian history. Annie Besant actually herself tours through Australia, first time in 1894 and again in the early 1900s. And she brings considerable excitement to the movement in Australia. And she is introduced in one of her lecture series by no other than Henry Parks. Hmm. The father of Federation. Yeah, who described her as unexcelled in courage, devotion and independence. I always thought that was going to be an insult because it starts with unexcelled, but then... He brings it around. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a funny word, isn't it? Um, but yeah, we've got some serious political figures behind these speakers. And she gets a very, very enthusiastic reception. She's one of the greatest orators of her age. And she speaks on a wide range of things, including opposing the idea of original sin, uh, especially as it is aimed at women and children. Uh, and she claims that instead the idea of reincarnation will alter uh, our whole conception of human life and uh, make the upbringing of children be based in a idea of a spiritual enlightenment rather than punishment and a severe shame shame uh, which is very interesting she also was enthusiastically greeted by the new south wales vegetarian society mm-hmm. 
to whom she explained that she ate mainly lentils for ease of carriage, but also she extolled the virtues of vegetarianism for an increasingly sedentary society. Mm-hmm. And she talked at length about the horrors of the meat industry, particularly in Chicago at this time, which I've also heard elsewhere. This was known as like the most horrific city for mm. animal slaughter in the world at this time. Yeah, yeah. They totally destroyed their riverways with all the chemical byproducts of the meatpacking process. Yeah, and I, apparently walking through the streets would have been like a horrendous experience. The sound of the animals, the smell of the animals, it would have been a very confronting place to go. But then as we were talking about, she also talked about spiritualism. And interestingly, there was an affair called the Mellon Affair, which caught the public attention and was splashed all over the papers, actually shortly after she left town. So Annie Besant had attended a private gathering at the home of a doctor on Elizabeth Street opposite Hyde Park, very well to do, mm-hmm. where a, a noted medium called Mrs. Annie Mellon had been in attendance and had demonstrated uh, some of her two apparitions called Geordie and Sissy. People were obviously very interested in, in Annie Besant. And so if she'd been there, they were very interested in this lady. And a few uh, weeks or months later, after trying to avoid the spotlight, this medium conducted a very private seance in her home in Wallara, where an architect in attendance just couldn't help himself, jumped on top of one of these spiritual manifestations and wrestled and grappled with him on the floor, proving that this was an all-too-physical manifestation. Uh, the press had a field day, and this was uh, widely covered. <laughs> and what's the Mellon connection? Oh, her last name was M-E-L-L-O-N. A little confusing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I thought it was like a stage name, Annie Mellon. That would be a good name. No, no, it just seems like her last name. <laughs> the, the Rock Mellon Poltergeist. Yeah, so there's always lots of different sides to this movement. Besant was also, interestingly, one of the very first people to embrace the Montessori education system. Okay. Uh, when this was just emerging out of Rome, reports of what Maria Montessori was up to, that was very strongly embraced by uh, the theosophists. And also, amongst other things, as you were talking about shame and punishment, they opposed capital punishment and really wanted to reform the punitive approach to dealing with crime that they saw in the West. Mm-hmm. Broad aims. Yeah. So as part of the opposition to the penal system at the time, uh, Besant really wanted to emphasize that those seen as lunatics were actually often suffering under the pressures put upon them by society at the time and that actually genius and lunacy were very closely aligned and that these people might be sensitive souls who actually had something significant to offer society or were just suffering given the oppressive conditions that they lived under i think captain moonlight would have found a lot to like about that rhetoric <laughs> yeah so uh, she claimed at this point that it's only fair to admit that at the present time, the genius, the artist of the highest kind, the greatest religious leader, the seer, the prophet, the revealer, often has a brain too delicate to bear the rough vibrations of this outer world. <laughs> My delicate brain. <laughs> and so as you can see, we've got some talk of a great religious leader, and this was part of the theosophical movement as well. There was a prediction that within a hundred years of Blavatsky's founding of the society, a, a new world teacher would be amongst us on earth uh-huh. and would bring us to a new spiritual level. Mm-hmm. And you'll be perhaps unsurprised to hear that in the hills north of Madras in 1895, 
the theosophists claimed to have found a dreamy Brahmin boy who they were pretty sure had some strong spiritual qualities to him. And they brought him back to the theosophical compound in Madras in the hopes that he might develop into the spiritually significant leader that they were waiting for. Uh-huh. I, yep. Now, yeah, I have come across this story. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like I've seen a documentary about this mm-hmm. or read about it. And I feel like what happens here is that the parents think it's wonderful and the boy goes off with the theosophists and sort of travels the world and everyone just accepts that he's like the new messiah until at some point like quite a long time later when he's like maybe in his 20s he kind of reassesses and decides that he's not the messiah and bails on the whole thing and leads a relatively unassuming existence yeah i think you've basically got the general idea then there i imagine Mm -hmm. you might unless there's similar story somewhere else which is very possible but i think you might have seen a, a documentary about this this man uh, so he was a boy known as Krishnamurti, which I might be mispronouncing. I apologize if I am, probably am. And he, I, th- I believe, was motherless. And so he was taken along with his father and brother back to uh, the headquarters and raised there all the time under kind of strict uh, supervision and uh, constant surveillance to see if he was uh, displaying the signs that they were waiting for, that he was the coming world teacher. By 1910... Uh, the theosophists are fairly convinced that this is the coming world teacher. And Besant, Annie Besant, is determined to legally adopt the boy mm. uh, against what comes to be increasing opposition from his father and also from hostile Christian missionaries in Madras. Mm-hmm. And this fight goes all the way up the courts. Uh, but in 1914, Annie Besant does win custody uh, on a somewhat dodgy legal technicality and whisks Krishnamurti away to London, uh, where the preparations for his coming as the world teacher really take off in earnest under the banner of a society known as the Order of the Star in the East. Mm-hmm. That'll be him, Krishna. Yeah, exactly. So this uh, society is dedicated solely to preparing the way for and spreading the good news about Krishnamurti. Its initial membership in Australia is about 620 members, and they're almost entirely from the Theosophical Societies that already existed at the time. Take us home to Sydney, Alistair. So we're going to get to Sydney, and things really ramp up uh, from these 19-teens through the 20s, and then fall off a cliff. (laughs) So I have to introduce one last person for Sydney, and this man is called Charles Webster Leadbeater. And he was very significant in theosophy from the very start. He was born in the 1850s. Again, a minor provincial clergyman in England and then sees the light in the 1870s during a spiritualist revival and heads off uh, as an early recruit of uh, Madame Blavatsky to India uh, and is in the headquarters there in Madras from the get-go. And a funny uh, turn of events, kind of coincidentally in some ways, he happens to be on his second Australian tour delivering lectures in 1914. And he happens to be in Sydney specifically uh, when war is declared with Germany. Mm -hmm. And so with the disruptions of the war, he's also getting on a little bit in age. The comfort of the theosophical homes on Sydney's lower north shore with the well-to-do, nice, comfortable place to be. Mm. He uh, actually kind of just settles in in Sydney. And he doesn't leave uh, until 1929. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a white feather to me. <laughs> uh, well, he would have already been, I think, 65 at this point. So I don't know <laughs> if he was... 
particularly heavily recruited in that time. He settles down in quite some style because there's a building, Jed, on Iluka Road in Clifton Gardens on the North Shore. Mm, lovely part of the world. I don't know this exact area and I don't, I don't know this building, but it's apparently a very impressive building. It's known as, a, or was known historically as Bakewell's Folly. And it's got a funny story behind it because this is a 55-roomed Edwardian mansion. Mm-hmm. That's quite a large building. Mm-hmm. The building originally has nothing to do with the Theosophists. So it was built by a man known as William Bakewell, who was very successful in the creation of bricks. So he, he owned a brickworks in Macdonald Town. And so successful was this brickworks that he had ample money and ample bricks to build a very, very large house in Clifton Gardens. I think I know that house. Is it number two? It could well be. I've just pulled up the map. Yeah. I mean, I hope that it would stand out given that it's got 55 rooms, but maybe the other houses in the area are quite large. No, they all do. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, I think I know the house. Very impressive. It's not in amazing condition. It's sort of like got a bit of rustic charm about it. Well, uh, that might be because it is still owned by the Theosophical Society. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it is one of the oldest spiritual communes still in continuous running use to this day in Australia. Right. What are the Theosophists up to in 2022? That I do not know. And if anyone does know, I'd love to hear about it. Mm-hmm. So this building created by a man who made his fortune in bricks. Ledbetter? No, No, so so Ledbetter buys it in 1922, or the Theosophical Uh Society buys it for him to stay in. He's an honoured guest, and a number of other families also live here, and it becomes a a commune of sorts. Uh, So the Brickman wasn't a Theosophist, he just sold the building. He He died in 1917, his house was never used by the rest of his family, and they decided to sell it in 1922. Died in honor fighting the Kaiser. Uh, probably not. Again, I think he was probably getting on at this point. <laughs> uh, I think he might have just died of old age. Carry on then. This building is probably is one of the most significant buildings associated with uh, the Theosophists in Sydney, and it's as we said, it's still owned by them today. Ledbetter was uh, very passionate about setting up Australia as a beacon of Theosophy, and he had three main things he wanted to do in uh, the post-war era. He wanted to focus on education, and there were a number of schools founded by theosophists along Montessori lines and also some of the very earliest co-educational schools in Australia. Uh, sadly, none of those buildings still exist. There was one at Gore Hill, just off the Pacific Highway, another one in uh, Stanmore, and then uh, the last one was in uh, Balmoral. But sadly, they don't exist. So we're going to move swiftly on. Mm-hmm. He thought that we were really missing the ritual and ceremony of the traditional, particularly Catholic Church. Uh-huh. And so he wanted to found something known as the Liberal Catholic Church, which basically brought all of the ceremony of the Catholic Mass, but with... None of those pesky beliefs. With, 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 a, with a new belief system. Yeah, so the Liberal uh, Catholic Church uh, still exists as a an entity. 
And the buildings where they were running their services are in Chippendale. So it was a co-Masonic temple. I know you're going to ask me about the Freemasons and I don't know any more about them. <laughs> but I know that the, co- the co-Masons were, were men and women. So it wasn't a strictly fraternal association. Okay. And they have this co-Masonic temple. And then next door to it, there was a Methodist church that was renamed as St. Albans Pro-Cathedral. And this is where this uh, liberal Catholic church took place. St. Albans Cathedral sadly no longer exists. It is now, I believe, a petrol station. But that co-Masonic temple uh, still stands at 54 Regent Street, Chippendale. Well worth a look as well. Very beautiful building. Beautiful. All right. So education, uh, this kind of revival of religious um, ceremony, and then most importantly, preparation for the coming world teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the most significant physical manifestation is this star amphitheater in Balmoral. And that is built in 1923 and 24. Takes a while to build because it's an enormous and very stunning building. I was going to say just two years. That's quite quick. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess there was less red tape back then. The plan is, is of course, for Krishnamurti to uh, deliver speeches there and for congregations to take place there to listen to this teacher that they hope will come and tour through Australia and impart his wisdom. Uh, So the talk about the Messiah coming through the heads was more in the the papers and kind of a misrepresentation of what the Theosophical Society believed in. So you just parroted their line to hype up me just like they did to the 1920s public. Exactly. Talk on the street was that tickets were being sold to gullible people who wanted a prime position to see the Messiah walk through the heads for a hundred pounds a pop, things like that. But I don't believe that this is actually the case, but it was an incredibly public and visible building that Mm. dominates the beach there. I I imagine that caused a lot of uh, curiosity for the people of Sydney. The other preparation for the coming world teacher was the foundation of a radio station, Mm. which I would hope would uh, spread the good news. They'd been experimenting with uh, transmitting a radio station from this big manor, the one we were talking about, the brickwork one in Clifton Gardens, Mm -hmm. uh, from as early as 1923. What they really wanted was to get the name 2AB, so AB for Annie Besant. Uh, But that call sign was taken by a guy in Neutral Bay who'd already claimed it. And so instead, they went for 2GB standing for Giordano Bruno, a 16th century Italian philosopher who was a historical <laughs> hero of the Theosophists and believed to be a previous incarnation of Annie Besant. Wow. Since the Theosophists were quite well-to-do people, fairly cultured in general, they actually encountered amongst their members the uh, Burley Griffiths. The Burley Griffins. The Burley, I say Burley Griffiths, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't build Griffith, did they? They did plan Griffith. That's why it confuses me. They did. Griffith is laid out as like a mini Canberra. Yeah, okay. That's why I always get the Griffins and Griffith. Yeah, sorry. The Burley Griffins, who plan not only Canberra, but also Griffith, but also... <laughs> Castle Crag. Castle Crag, yes. Uh, so this is the kind of people that are, that are interested in theosophy. They have quite a lot of money in their coffers from their benefactors. And so they actually are always had their own orchestra and so the uh, 2gb radio station had a very uh, high quality of classical music and it was very very popular especially with housewives and a part of their mission was not only to eventually when i say something's popular with housewives i get thrown under the bus but you can just drop it 
like that and expect nothing. Well, so the thing that's interesting is it won a popular poll amongst housewives for the most popular radio station. Can't argue with the stats, I guess. And it was actually very significant to the commercial success of 2GB because this upmarket female-dominated audience was considered by early advertisers Ooh, as yeah. a very, very desirable uh, audience to be selling products to. The David Joneses of the world would have been fighting for that airtime. Yeah, so with the, uh, I think in 1925, they start this radio station. By 1928, it actually was a shareholder kind of situation and the shares were paying significant dividends within three years. Uh, it was a phenomenal success and actually obviously has outlasted the significance of the Theosophical Society in public life in Sydney because 2GB uh, remains one of the most popular radio stations in Sydney today. And does it still bear any uh, connection to the Theosophists? It does not. <laughs> uh, so things take a turn for the worse for the Theosophists uh, in the 19, late 1920s and by I think the mid-30s it's been taken over by the Denison family uh, who owned uh, 2UE as well that's the other one i said <laughs> anyway um yeah so they paid they ended up paying i think twenty five thousand pounds apparently to the theosophical society and promising a small allocation of airtime in the coming years to promote theosophical causes but yeah today it's got no real association with the theosophical society and is krishnamurti aka jesus 2.0 still coming to sydney yeah so they're very excited they're hoping that he will come we need to get to the point where he is proclaimed as the world teacher because up to now it's kind of an open secret within the theosophical community that they pretty sure that this is the guy but this is all going on in london right yeah okay so in the 1920s is when krishnamurti's coming of age he's up into his 20s uh, nearly 30 and it's expected that he's going to take up this mantle in uh, 1925, Annie Besant speaks at the Golden Jubilee, marking 50 years since the establishment of the Theosophical Society by Blavatsky. And her address includes the following quote. She says, uh, You notice that it has lately been said that the world teacher will soon be amongst us. It is known to some of us that he has slightly hastened what we may call the date of his coming because of the troubled and almost hopeless condition of the modern world. It is the great need of the world which calls him. And the very next day, 30-year-old Krishnamurti spoke in a way that was taken by all those around him to be a pronouncement of his role as the world teacher. For he said, I come for those who want sympathy, who want happiness, who are longing to be released. I come to reform and not tear down, and I come not to destroy, but to build. And these words, though not exactly a proclamation that he was the world teacher, were taken to be such. And over the coming years, he was touring around the world from 1925 to 1929. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't quite on the money. He's touring it up. He's loving it. Uh, well, he's not loving it. So it's, it's, very, it's very awkward for the Theosophical Society because actually whenever he speaks, what he says seems to be like clearly heretical and against their beliefs. <laughs> What's he spooking? Well, we'll get to that now. Within four years, he formally dissolves the order and gives up his position as a world teacher. Does he even have the authority to dissolve the order? Well, he does because he succeeds Annie Besant upon his proclamation as the world leader and becomes the uh, leader of the Order of the Star in the East. And and also world leader. Yeah, alongside... Well, he's the, he's the world teacher, I think, is the title that he's given. You have been using those words interchangeably. I have, yeah. So my apologies for that. I led you down the garden track and then called you on it. <laughs> so in 1929, he gives a speech uh, formally 
denouncing the Order of the Star in the East and his role as a world teacher. He claims, and I quote, I do not want followers. I desire those who seek to understand me to be free, not to follow me, not to make out of me a cage which will become a religion or a sect. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a massive fallacy in the whole plan that if you just pluck a kid and then spend the next 20 years telling them that they're the Messiah, that they're going to be interested in playing that role. Yeah. The people who want to be messiahs are usually people who come out of nowhere and build that, like, cult of personality around them. Madame Blavinsky and Annie um, Blade. Bl- Blavatsky and Annie Bezant. <laughs> Annie Bezant, yeah. thank you. All I can think of is Annie Bezos. <laughs> Annie Bezant. Yeah, so, I mean, it's funny that these sorts of people thought that they could just pull a random person out of the air and they had, you know, obviously also want to be the messiah. Yeah, yeah. So he he says, uh, you want to have new gods instead of the old, new religions instead of the old, all equally valueless, all barriers, all limitations, all crutches. You are accustomed to being told how far you have advanced, how childish. After careful consideration, I have made this decision to dissolve the order. You can form a new organization and expect someone else. Yeah, wow. All this before he got to Sydney. Yeah, so he, I, he never makes it to Sydney as the world teacher, no. He never he never delivers the speeches that they were hoping for at that amphitheatre. It's used for staging a couple of Greek tragedies <laughs> and things like that by people associated with the uh, Theosophical Society. But after being built in yeah, 1924, it's finished. By 1931, the, the dreams of the, the coming world teacher have completely shattered and it's sold to a person who uses it for vaudeville and other live performances, as well as installing a mini golf course on the roof. Oh, excellent. Which would have been a really good mini golf course. But then it's sold to the Catholic Church in 1936. Yeah. And falls into a state of disrepair. Uh, which I think is the way that all theosophical buildings must go. (laughs) And it's completely demolished in 1951, so it just sat in disrepair for a good 15 years. I wonder why the Catholics bought it. Did they turn it into a school? I don't think it was particularly well used during that time. I don't, if anyone knows anything about its use from 1936 to 51, I'd love to find out. Oh, yes. <laughs> the phones will be ringing hot. I, I believe kids used to be able to kind of run around in it and play games and things like that. I don't think it was used for any formal purposes. Mm-hmm. And when was it torn down? 1951. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was turned into a large block of 30 flats, a red brick kind of you know, 1950s yep. apartment block. Okay. It's right up against the sand in... Um, Balmoral. Actually, I have walked past that. It's got a very interesting car park, which I'm now looking at on um, aerial imagery. But I remember walking past it being like, that is quite a car park. Yeah, so that used to be the higher part of the amphitheater. And then look, you would look down from there to the stage. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that is my story of many of the ill-fated buildings associated with the Theosophical Society, a society that counted amongst its members and uh, interested parties many significant figures in turn-of-the-century Australia, and a society that I think, as you were saying, has, has a fascinating relationship with today's New Age mysticism and interest in Eastern religions and Eastern practices. Yeah, there's a lot of elements to that story. I'm still digesting them. 
And I'm still very much caught up on these little fragments of knowledge I had about it. You suggested before that perhaps I'd seen a documentary about Krishnamurti. So I'm wondering if you know of a famous documentary that might have come out recently that I likely would have come across. No, I thought that you said that you thought you'd watch something about him. Well, I mean, I I must have because I... (laughs) Somewhere. Okay, no, that's fine. Oh, so, yeah, so actually when it comes to Krishnamurti, the interesting thing is, as you mentioned uh, in an offhand way about the Beatles, interest in the East takes off in the late 60s, early 70s, and actually that includes a revival in interest in Krishnamurti, who continues to be a person who's more than happy to talk about his insights and his uh, theories on spirituality and education, but just not in a dogmatic way and as a leader of a society. So his publications and biography uh, become... uh, much more widely distributed and well sold in the early 70s. Mm, okay. I'm just having a look at him here. I think I referred to him as Krishna before thinking that it was his first name, but his actually his surname is Krishnamurti. Oh, okay, there you go. His first name's Jiddu. Well, in all the accounts I was reading, he was just referred to as Krishnamurti, so I apologize for uh, not mentioning his full name. That's absolutely fine. It's really interesting, and I'm very curious as to where I came across this knowledge, but that's uh, my problem. Um, so I wanted, also wanted to ask you something else, which was, I don't know what I want to ask you. I wanted to ask you about the book that I presume you have been synthesizing for us. Yeah. So the book is called Searching for Spirit, Theosophy in Australia from 1879 to 1939. It's not, again, probably not a book that I would necessarily recommend that people just go out and grab as a page turner. It's... (laughs) very detailed about all of the minor affairs of all of these different lodges throughout Australia. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't read in a chronological way. It's kind of each chapter is thematic. <laughs> that explains your episodic forth. structure. Yeah, I struggled with it a little bit. Um, but the thing that is that is a shame is that otherwise it's quite hard to get any significant information on the internet in one narrative form. Like you get little snippets yeah. from especially like Mossman snippets of like, oh, look at this interesting building and look at this other interesting thing, but not the kind of continuous narrative of theosophy. Yeah, so it's a difficult one. I don't have any direct recommendations for people to of an account to read. Maybe there is one out there. And again, I'd love to know it. Well, I'm definitely going to do some Wikipediaing after this episode. There's a lot of that to be done. That's probably what you want to do. <laughs> No shame, Alistair. You can just say it. Yeah, I I tried to see a clear of it on this one because I feel like dealing with mysticism on Wikipedia is probably a bit of a mm-hmm. toxic mix. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to just be saying things outright didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I tried to stick to this book that's well researched, um, but it did it did make it hard to kind of pull all of the strands together and present a kind of popular story about how things happen Mm. well thank you very much for your efforts because i for one enjoyed it immensely well i'm very glad you did jed and i should also like to say before we continue on that in the midst of this episode i lost power as a storm (laughs) surged over the eastern seaboard but i actually think we managed to navigate that without it becoming too apparent in the continuity of the audio but if you do hear some aggressively billowing trees Yeah, that's just a storm cell passing overhead. Just another storm in Sydney this summer. It's not even summer anymore. It's not even Sydney. (laughs) Yeah, both good points. (laughs) 
Yeah, but as you were mentioning, enjoying the episode, and I am very much looking forward to enjoying your last episode of this season. And I have no idea what it's going to be about. So would you be able to provide a little clue? I can, and I can also tell why you're sounding so enthusiastic because your content production responsibilities have now officially ended. (laughs) Yeah, this was a tough season. (laughs) Next fortnight will be our last episode for season three, which means Alistair will not be delivering any more clues or uh, episodes until we return for season four, uh, which is yet to be discussed. So to kick off what will be our last episode for the season is my clue. So Alistair, to continue on from your Wobblies episode, Mm -hmm. this will be a story about capitalists and their ongoing subjugation of the working class. (laughs) Oh, God, we can't make our podcast too much along these lines, Jen. We're going to lose most people. <laughs> All right. Well, it's it's a it's a listener suggestion. So, you okay. know, I'm giving the people what they want. Maybe that's just all our listeners are on board. I did department stores last episode. That's true. Palaces of consumerism, I believe you called them. Exactly. But this story will set sail from a very, very important harbour and then it will disappear Somewhere into the Pacific. Hmm. It's not the it's not the bounty mutiny, is it? <laughs> Might be. It isn't. Because <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with Sydney. Well, it kind of does. Because Bly, then it's got a little bit to do with Sydney, and I mean anything to do with what your story or the bounty mutiny. <laughs> <laughs> I will not stand for that. Yes, I take it. Okay, so there's a ship. It leaves <laughs> an important port and sinks in the middle of the Pacific. And this this is our story about Sydney for next for next fortnight. It's, a, it's an abstract clue. Oh, is this one of those Sydney Sydney Harbour and its preserva- and her preservation? Not quite that clever. Okay, uh, I'm sure I'll have no idea by <laughs> next fortnight. But I'm looking forward to That's it. That's secretly a good thing for you because you didn't want to spend any time thinking about it. You want to go and relax. Have a nice time and then come back and be regaled with a wonderful story that may or may not relate to Sydney. I can't wait. That sounds like my kind of story. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that story as much as uh, we enjoyed telling it and pondering it. If you did enjoy that episode or are enjoying the podcast, please uh, feel free to tell your friends and family about it and spread the word. We love having new listeners. Uh, and if you'd like to get in contact with us with any questions, uh, you can email us. Uh, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com is the email. You can also follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And we'll be uh, back in a fortnight's time for Jed's last story of this season. See you then.